I was a little worried I was going to step on this, Tim, but I noticed you kept stepping on it all the time, so <laughs> guess that's okay. Let me just reiterate what, uh, what Rindy said a, a few minutes ago. We welcome you to stop over, grab a cup of coffee, and bring it in with you. Um, we have found that many fewer people fall asleep during the sermon when they have coffee, so I'm just kind of encouraging that today. I was actually excited when I saw that we were going to do a teaching series on these first four chapters of the Gospel of John. I love teaching the Bible. I love learning about it. Um, I was not so excited when I found out that I was going to be teaching John chapter 3. Because everybody knows John chapter 3 already, right? John 3.16, the most well-known, most memorized verse in the entire Bible. We know it already. So I looked at what else was in the third chapter of John. I realized, so it's a story about Nicodemus. I mean, I think I remember like in third grade Sunday school learning that story. So I, I just sort of felt like, well, I'll, I'm, I'll confess a little something here. So sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I come to something that I think I know well, I tend to just skip over it and go to, go to whatever's next, you know, coming up. And I think... As I thought about it, I think maybe we do that, maybe with John chapter 3. Yeah, we know John 3.16. We know about Nicodemus. Maybe it's been a long time for some of us, myself included maybe, since we've actually looked at that passage of Scripture to see what's happening there. So today, we're not going to have a sermon. Hold your applause, please. <laughs> we're just going to do an old-fashioned kind of verse-by-verse -verse Bible study to see what it is that God wants to teach us through this particular passage of Scripture. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the third chapter of John. Otherwise, so the words will be on the screen up here. And let's just kind of go through it together. Ready? So John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So right away, John identifies this person and tells us a couple important things about him. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, is a member of the ruling council. Um, we, we need to understand that in New Testament times during Jesus' life, there were actually two Jewish religious groups. One group were the Sadducees, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees... Uh, they sort of ran the temple. So they were in charge of like making sure that the animals there to be sacrificed to change, um, change money so it could be used in the temple. As a result of that, the Sadducees were pretty wealthy guys. And the strange thing about them, even though they were a, a religious group, they didn't believe in things like life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the soul or the spirit. In fact, you've probably heard this before, the, 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 they didn't believe in, in the resurrection, and so they were sad, you see. <laughs> now, I can almost guarantee that five years from now, you will not remember a thing I said today other than that. You'll know who the Sadducees were. So that's one of the leading groups. The other leading Jewish religious group were the Pharisees, very different than the Sadducees. The Pharisees, if the Sadducees were sort of almost non-religious, the Pharisees were ultra-religious. I mean, their goal in life was to keep the minutia of the law, the Old Testament, the Torah, and, and they were devoted to that. The, the Pharisees were in charge of the synagogues, the local Jewish churches. 
So any community that had at least 10 Jewish men could have a synagogue, and it would be the Pharisees who were in charge of that. So we've got these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they worked together, hopefully, on the, the Jewish ruling council that was called the Sanhedrin, about 70 or 72 men from these two groups who had to come together to work, so different from each other. Guess what that reminds me of in America today? Republicans and Democrats. I mean, isn't that it? So different in so many ways, and yet, you know, commissioned to come together in Congress and to do something, right? It was a little bit that way with the Sanhedrin. Pharisees and Sadducees sort of pulled together to work to accomplish something in Israel during Jesus' time. So that's Nicodemus. Let's go on to verse 2. So he, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night and he said, uh, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miracle, miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus begins with it very respectfully addressing Jesus as a rabbi, which means teacher, and he acknowledges the things that Jesus has been doing as something that sort of authenticate Jesus as, as someone who has come from God. Now, does John tell us about these things that Jesus has been doing in chapter 1 or chapter 2 when we get to chapter 3? A little bit, but not too much. It seems as if we need to recognize that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously not everything Jesus did or everything Jesus taught is included. In fact, at the end of the Gospels, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not included in this book. But these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John hasn't recorded everything that Jesus has been doing. A little bit, we see in chapter 2, he performs a miracle turning water into wine that Steph talked about last week. So Jesus has been active, but it's early in his ministry. And yet already, Nicodemus, one of the 70 most important people in Israel, one of the leaders of Israel has heard about Jesus, and he comes to Jesus. It says that, you know, that he came to Jesus at night. A lot of, a lot of question about why he came at night. I, I would guess it's because Jesus was so busy, surrounded by so many people during the day, that maybe the only time he could get some time with Jesus to talk to him personally was at night. So he comes to Jesus at, at, at night. Second thing I would notice about this is that I would guess that the disciples were there too. Now, the passage only mentions Jesus and Nicodemus talking together. But my guess would be that Jesus and his disciples, some of them, all of them maybe, were sitting around, and Nicodemus comes, and Jesus and Nicodemus have this conversation together. So one of the people who maybe was there listening to this conversation would have been his disciple, John. And maybe that's one of the things that enabled John to write this account of Jesus' life, life, this biography of Jesus, the gospel of John, because he'd been there. Maybe he's even sitting there taking notes on what Jesus and Nicodemus are saying to each other. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's an important man, and he says, you know, he starts out respect, respectfully to Jesus. I, I know that you're a rabbi, that you've come from God. I've heard about, maybe even seen some of the things that you've done. And so then we come to verse, verse 3. 
So in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Where did that come from? I mean, Nicodemus is asking, you know, being polite, asking some questions. And right away, it sounds like Jesus jumps into this really deep spiritual truth. And again, here's what I think about this. My guess is that they had a lengthy conversation. If you read the entire conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, it takes like 45 seconds. I can't imagine this important man coming to Jesus, sitting down with him, talking for 45 seconds, and then leaving. I would guess they talked about a lot of things. But John chose the things that he thought were important for us to know and to understand in the same way that Jesus must have thought it was important for Nicodemus to, to understand them as well. So Jesus makes this outstanding claim. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How confusing must that have been for Nicodemus? You know, in, in America today, we're all pretty familiar with the phrase, you know, being born again. We talk about it a lot in, in Christian circles, being born again, the beginning of this process. But for Nicodemus, that must have, I mean, that was out of left field. Where did that come from? You've got to be born again? And Nicodemus expresses his confusion in verse 4. So, so how can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. I mean, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. What's Nicodemus doing? So he's still thinking physical, right? He's thinking about the physical things, and Jesus is already trying to move the conversation away from physical kind of stuff to spiritual reality and spiritual truth that he's wanting Nicodemus to understand. So Nicodemus is still thinking about it in terms of a physical birth, and he's trying to picture this, and he realizes it's impossible. You know, a person can't, can't be born again. So let's go on. Verse 8, so Jesus answered, well, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh give birth, gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. To spirit. <laughs> You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So Jesus realizes that Nicodemus is having under, uh, trouble understanding. So he gives a little explanation of it. But it makes it a little hard for us to understand, doesn't it? He's saying, so what I'm talking about here, when I talk about a person needing to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God, it involves two things. It involves water and the spirit. A lot of question about what Jesus means by that. Some people have thought it means physical birth and spiritual birth. So like when a, when a pregnant woman is ready to give birth, her water breaks. So maybe Jesus is saying, you've you got to be born physically, a physical birth, but you've also got to be born of the Spirit. Here's what I take this to mean, though, and I'm, I'm not sure about this, but it seems to me that John has just been talking about John the Baptist. He's going to go on later in the chapter to talk about John the Baptist. And what's John been doing? Remember, John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. So people recognized their sin, their failure, their separation from God. And they would come to the Jordan River and confess those things, and John would baptize them in water. And it seems to me like, Jesus is saying, that, that's got to be the first step. The first step has got to be that you recognize that you're a sinful person, that you don't deserve God's love, that you have failed him every day of your life, 
And like those people going down to the Jordan River to John the baptizer and being baptized in the river, you've got to be born of water. There's got to be that water of repentance. And there's a second step. Once you do that, once you confess your sins and repent of them, then God sends his spirit into you to make you a new person. And I think Jesus is saying, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about being born again. So, so then in the next verse, verse 8, he gives this really neat illustration. He says, so the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus now understand this spiritual truth that you've got to be born of the Spirit. And so to do that, he uses the illustration of the wind. I love that. I mean, the wind is a great example of that, isn't it? You know, we see the wind blow. We, um, Sally and I moved a few years ago to the Western home, and last summer we planted some trees. And it's fun to look out and see those trees. And the, there's a lot of wind blowing out there, and those trees sway in the wind, and the wind blows, and it blows the, the clouds around. But like Jesus said, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You can't see it. You just see its power. You feel its power. The, the wind must have been a real mystery in Jesus' day. That's not so true for us today, is it? Because I have noticed and checked pretty carefully that virtually every half hour of news is 17 and a half minutes is spent on the weather. And they, they tell you the high fronts and the low fronts and what we're coming our way and what the temperature is in Seattle. And they go through all of that and help us to understand. Um, I'll tell you a secret that may change your life. You can get a KWWL weather app on your phone and look at it and in 15 seconds know everything you need to know. How tough it must have been for Nicodemus and people in his day to understand the wind. It was a marvel to them. The wind would blow in off the Mediterranean and it would be cool in the evening. And Jesus says, that's like the spirit. Well, what do you mean by that? What a great example. The spirit comes. We can't see the spirit. We can't really understand it, but we see its power. We see its effect. In the same way that we see the wind blowing the trees and blowing the clouds around. Jesus says, it's like that. The wind is like the spirit. In fact, in, uh, in Greek, the same word is the word for wind and for spirit. So Jesus says, so it is with everyone born of the spirit. In verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. Verse 10, Jesus says, are you Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? I mean, if I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Did Jesus get frustrated? Would that have been a sin for him to get frustrated, or would it have been a pretty natural reaction? I mean, here's Nicodemus, a, a leader, a teacher of the Jews, and Jesus is laying out some really basic things about the spiritual life, and Nicodemus isn't understanding them. And I, I sense a little frustration here in what Jesus is saying. So I want you to notice right at the beginning of verse 11, he says, I tell you the truth. 
So when I was growing up, the Bible we had was the King James Bible. And it often said, had Jesus speaking, and it would begin by saying, verily, verily, I say to you. Do any of you remember that? Verily, verily, I say to you. I never understood what verily meant. And then, uh, as I got older, we had a new, new edition of the Bible, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. And they changed it from verily, verily to truly, truly. So it seemed like every time Jesus spoke, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. Well, now in the Bible that we use here most of the time, the one I'm using, the NIV, the New International Version, it changes that to make it a little more understandable to us today. It says, I tell you the truth. Tell you the truth. That's the same thing as the verily, verily, or the truly, truly. It's Jesus' way of saying, okay, pay attention to this. Listen to this. Try hard to understand. He says, I, you know, I, I'm speaking of things that are hard for you to understand, I know. I want you to believe, and I realize that these truths are hard for you to understand. They're new to you. So he goes on in verse 13. So no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So here, I think Jesus is asserting his authority. He's saying there's something about him. You can, you can believe my teaching, Nicodemus. You can believe what I'm saying to you about spiritual truths. And here's the reason. He says, out of all the people who have ever lived, nobody's ever come down from heaven. You know, when we die, we go up to heaven. But nobody's ever come down from heaven except the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming in that verse, in, in that sentence, to say, I am the eternal God. Now, isn't that what we believe? That Jesus' existence didn't begin with his birth in Bethlehem to Mary. Jesus' existence has always been as part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as such, he has always existed. And so as God, he's come down to earth, he says, to help people understand and experience these spiritual truths. No one except me has ever come down from heaven, he says. And then in verse 14, he gives another illustration. So he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is referring to a story from the Old Testament. One of the, one of the amazing things about the Pharisees who studied the Torah, the Old Testament, so much is they, they actually memorized it. They would memorize whole books of the Bible. Some of them had actually memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had memorized it all. So when Jesus makes this reference to an Old Testament story, you can be sure that Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's referring to a story that's told in the book of Numbers. God, through Moses' leadership, has brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They come out into the wilderness area. He's given them his law and assured his presence with them through the tabernacle. And he's providing for them there in the wilderness. But day after day and year after year, they wander around in the wilderness. 
And God has given them water, and God gave them manna, this stuff that grows on the ground in the morning, and they're sick of it. I mean, how many manna sandwiches can you get before you feel like you're going to barf if you eat another one? So the Israelites, they complain, and they go to Moses to complain to God. We're sick of this stuff. And so God does a really interesting thing here. God sends what the Bible calls you know, poisonous serpents, fiery serpents, poisonous snakes among the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness. There are things I am afraid of. Snakes would maybe be at the top of the list. This story in Numbers creeps me out more than I think anything in the Bible. Imagine there. So you're, you're in the wilderness. You're living in a tent. You're sleeping on the ground on a mat, and there are poisonous snakes everybody, everywhere. And when the, the snake bites someone, they die. Now the people realize, maybe we didn't have it so bad after all. So they go to Moses again, and they ask Moses to pray that God would take away these snakes and save them. So Moses does a really interesting thing under God's direction. God says, make, make a, a statue of a serpent, a snake, and put it on a pole and lift it up high in the middle of the camp. And then he says, then anybody who is bitten by the snake who's going to die can look at that snake up on the pole and they will live. And so that's what happens. Anybody who's bitten by the poisonous snake who's going to die as the consequences of his grumbling and complaining can look at that snake and live. What a neat picture Jesus gives us of exactly what's going to happen to him. That he's going to be lifted up, right? In his crucifixion, lifted up on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension to heaven. Jesus is going to be lifted up and he's going to say, you know, look to me and you'll be saved. You'll be spared that death. I would, I would guess in the story in Numbers, there were some people who didn't do it. I can sort of picture my dad in that group, you know. How is looking at this snake statue going to save anybody? That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It does not make any sense at all. And I don't care if I am bitten. I'm not looking at that dumb snake. You know, it doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, how, how could looking at a snake, a statue of a snake, save you from dying from the snake's poison? And in a way, it doesn't make any sense either to think about looking to Jesus. How could looking at a man 2,000 years ago dying on a cross, how can that save me? How can that provide for my forgiveness, for my sins, and help me to have a new relationship with God? How can, how can that make a difference so that I can be born again? And so then we come to, uh, to John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What's John saying here? Let's look at it a little deeper. He's saying that God so loved the world. Who are we talking about? We're not talking about the kind of pagan gods of the nations surrounding Israel. We're talking about the God of the universe, the God who created the 
two trillion galaxies, the God who has always existed, that God loved us so much, loved the world so much. Does that mean he loved the Jews so much? Does it mean he loved Republicans so much or Democrats or Americans? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This moves me deeply, and I'm going to tell you why. When I think about Jesus willingly knowing what he was doing, saying to, to God the Father and God the Spirit, I'll go down. I'll go down to earth. I'll become one of them, and I'll, I'll suffer and die for them. That's an amazing demonstration of love that's almost more than I can understand. But what moves me so much these days is thinking about God the Father. Jesus is saying, God the Father loved the world so much that he gave his son. If you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa, I think you understand what that means. I can remember times when our, when our kids, our daughter or son, you know, were sick or injured. I, I would have gladly, in a second, taken their suffering upon myself. If they'd been dying, I would have, without hesitating, said, I'll die in their place. Let me do that, right? Because a father or a mother, it's, it's so hard to watch your son or your daughter suffer. And yet God, the eternal God, loved the world so much that he gave his son. He watched his son go down and be beaten with whips and nailed to a cross and raised up and left to die. So John records Jesus laying out this important truth for Nicodemus and also for us. So if you were studying this passage yourself, what, what might you learn from it? What would you carry with you? There are a couple things that I think are important. One is that Nicodemus has a lot of, a lot of questions, right? Doesn't he? And I think when you read the Bible, you're going to have a lot of questions. There are some things that are just not going to make sense. You're going to wonder about. You have questions. And that's okay. Just as Jesus didn't object to people coming to him with questions, he still doesn't. When we have questions, that's okay. And the second thing that strikes me is there are some spiritual truths we just can't understand. I mean, some of the, some of the most basic things that I believe and hold on to, I, I can't even understand. I can't understand how God can be God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and be three and yet be one. I can't understand how Jesus being lifted up on the cross can save me from my sins. There's so much that I don't understand, and yet I know that they are true. And I've discovered in myself that I don't have to understand something completely to believe it and to base my life on it. And finally, the thing that I notice here about Nicodemus is, as we started out, Nicodemus was a part of the ruling religious class, and yet he was unsaved, right? He didn't have a personal relationship with God. He didn't even understand some of these spiritual truths. It seems like we can get kind of messed up that way today. Think, well, 
I'm a member of the church. Duh. Yeah, like I must be saved. I, I grew up with Christian parents. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm saved. But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, that's not what counts. Being a Pharisee doesn't count. Being an American doesn't count. Being a member of Orchard Hill Church doesn't count. They may help. You can be grateful for them. But what matters is what Jesus said here in John 3.16. That you believe on Jesus Christ. That's the only way by which our sins can be forgiven. And which God can give us that amazing truth he talks about here. About new birth. Let's pray. Uh, God, I am grateful that in your wisdom, you not only saw that this stuff was recorded by somebody like John, but you preserved it for us today and help us to understand spiritual truths that maybe are raised questions in our minds and are not totally clear, but to know that through Jesus Christ alone, we can have new birth. Amen.